Welcome to episode 44 of F-Stop Collaborate and Listen with host Matt Payne. Hey, listen, we're back this week with uh, an amazing guest um, and a Patreon supporter of the podcast, uh, Mark Handy. Mark has some incredibly fantastic landscape photography in his portfolio. Definitely check it out. He's traveled all over the world um, and just super outstanding dude like one of the most enjoyable conversations i've had in a very long time in fact um i can't wait to meet him someday and just have a beer with him and chat it was so good um mark's a pretty unique guy um he used to have a gallery in uh, la jolla california so we talked quite a bit about the um dog-eat-dog nature of having his own gallery and what competition does to photographers. Um, We talked a lot about um, ethics in landscape photography and digital manipulation and why he only uh, captures uh, single images um, for his his work. But um, he is open to people doing whatever they want as long as they disclose it. We go into a lot of uh, conversation about that. In fact, we had 45 minutes conversation about that topic that I'm going to be putting up on Patreon. It was absolutely awesome. Um, we talked a lot about the um, his business model now where he, he does limited editions of one. And I think that's super unique and fantastic. And uh, we talked about um, the idea of not forcing, not forcing your artwork uh, to just make you money. I, th- I think that's an important topic uh, these days in landscape photography. Um, just a reminder, please, please, please um, support the podcast on Patreon. Uh, really appreciate all the people that have been uh, doing that lately, including Ben Canales, one of my all-time uh, favorite photographers, uh, James uh, Stedler, Jeff Eikhoff, Chap Lovejoy, Caleb Allen, Gary Randall, uh, Rene Rivera, Jesse Thorpe, um, Sarah, uh, Sarah Marino, uh, Jeff Peterson, uh, uh, Jack Curran, um, Eric Stensland, uh, Russell Good- Gooden, Danny LeFrancois, um, Josh Latham, uh, Yannick Jorzik, Brzezinski, um, Lori Berenson, uh, hopefully I'm not missing anyone. Thank you all for your recent Patreon uh, support. I really appreciate it. As usual, reach out to me on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Reddit, Matt Payne Photo, Matt Payne Photography. Thanks a lot for listening. Man, Mark Candy, it is so cool to have you on the podcast. I um, am so grateful to have um, discovered you. I mean, I think you kind of discovered me in some sense because you became a supporter of the podcast and um, Eric Bennett mentioned you and I think a lot of other people mentioned you as well. So it's 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 just awesome to have you here, man. Well, I appreciate it. It's, it's an honor to be on your podcast. I do enjoy it. I've listened to every one of them, save the last one that you just did. I haven't <laughs> listened to that one yet, but I'll get to it. Okay. Well, no rush. It's, uh, I mean, yeah, it's interesting. I had someone message me today like, oh, I just found your podcast and I've been binging through it. And I'm like, oh, how many have you listened to? And they're like, I listened to like 25 in the last week. I'm like, wow. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, That's I cool. think I did too. I did the same thing. I binge listened as well. Cool. Well, awesome, man. So I figure uh, maybe what we could do to start out with is maybe just you uh, telling the listeners um, a little bit about yourself. I know you have a pretty fascinating uh, personal background, um, and then maybe try to dovetail that a little bit into how you got into uh, nature uh, landscape photography. Sure. I think we should just start at the beginning. So I was educated at Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah, so I really have a real love for that area of the world. The Mountain West is just gorgeous. And my first experience was as a BYU student. So uh, even though I wasn't a photographer back then, I truly did enjoy being there. 
Uh, went to law school after that, went to the University of Idaho, College of Law in Moscow, Idaho. That's in the Palouse. Yeah. That's, that's why I have such a love for that area as well. Uh, even though, again, I wasn't a photographer in 2006 when I started law school, I still loved everything I saw about it. It's just I didn't have a camera at the time and had no interest in becoming a photographer at that time either. Thank God, actually, because <laughs> I figured if I was a photographer, I probably would have dropped out of law school. <laughs> so I didn't do that. Anyhow, uh, moving on, I was in my actual professional professional career. I was a producer at AOL. It was called America Online back in the day. Everybody remembers <laughs> that, I'm sure. You've got and, mail. Yeah, you've got mail. And I was a producer there. What, what that meant is that I actually built out uh, the infrastructure um, through programming. So AOL used a proprietary language called Rain Man, and you program the environment using Rain Man. And so that, that was pretty fascinating. Uh, after that, I met a journalist at the San Francisco Chronicle. His name was Herb Greenberg. He was my mentor for my journalism career. Um, I introduced myself to him one day and turns out that he didn't mind if I answered some questions around his online site on AOL. And so one thing led to the, the next. By 1996, he asked me if I wanted to interview over at the San Francisco Chronicle for a job. He said he could make no guarantees, but <laughs> give it a try. Let's see what happens. I did get hired. Started my journal, journalism career, end of 1996, early 1997. Stayed there for a couple of years. Uh, moved over to thestreet.com in 1999. You, you probably know thestreet.com from Jim Cramer. He's the one who started that site. And I was there for eight and a half years. What else did I do? Um, so that was, um, that was mostly like um, Wall Street covering, journalism? Yes, yes. Covering business at the Chronicle and writing about mutual funds when I was at AOL, I had a column called behind the numbers. And then when I was at the street.com, it was nothing but wall street. So from 99 to 2008, I did nothing but report on wall street. And I did a lot of investigative report reporting, which was amazing because as you know, there was so much fraud during the early two thousands on wall street. We were totally swamped with the amount of frauds that we were covering. And so that, I, that is definitely my favorite time in my business career that I, that I had, I would say that, being able to cover all of that stuff and just really see it firsthand was an amazing experience. But I think, having said that, I didn't leave it in 2008. Uh, I think it mentioned to me uh, that at one point in time you had like a million uh, people that were subscribed to your blog. Yeah, they weren't subscribed to my blog, but on average I got about a million unique visitors to my blog. And I covered the credit consumer credit markets. Huh. I did it though as an anonymous person, which was great because I get all kinds of tips and all of my sources from the various banks who would give me scoops on information. And then you get the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, and people like that actually picking up my stories from my blog <laughs> and then publishing them. So it was great. And then every now and then I would, and I, of course I did have some friends at the journal and at the various news publications who knew that I was running this blog. So they would pick up my material as well, but it was great. It was, it was a fascinating time when I did that. And I did that until uh, 2009. And as you know, the market fell apart in 2008 and 2009. And so it was a pure, pure good luck. I, I had good luck in the timing of the blog and, and I did really well with it, but I left that blog alone at, in 2009 and moved on to something different. And so I made some money on it though, because I was doing advertising on the site. And so it paid itself in spades for probably the next seven wow. years. Even though I wasn't putting any new content on the <laughs> site, people would still go to that site and click the ads that were there. And so I, I finally found that it didn't make sense to keep the blog going in 2016. And I found huh, out it go. Okay. So um, <laughs> how did you go from a uh, financial blogger and reporter slash lawyer to, to uh, landscape photography. <laughs> so the birth of the birth of our son in 2011 is the impetus for my start in photography. My wife said, Hey, listen, someone's gonna have to take pictures of our son during the first month and until the last month of the first year. So 12 different photo shoots. I just want to chronicle his life because there's so much change that takes place. And I said, that's fine and dandy, 
but it won't be me since I don't even own a camera and I've never outside of a Polaroid ever taken a picture. <laughs> and so if you don't mind, it won't be me, but I know someone who can do it. And so I got a friend, he's a professional Casey Withers and he captured images of our, our son for the first three months. And it started to add up. Obviously you're paying two, $300 a month to make sure you have really high quality images. But I figured after about three months, well, I could have probably bought a camera for that much. And in the end, maybe I can take some competent pictures. That's not to discount what he was doing, of course, because he's much better photographer than I was uh, at that time. And he was doing nothing but portraits and he's just the perfect person for it. So I'm glad that we went that direction. But at some point I approached him and said, listen, I would like to capture my own images of my son. And I'm hoping that you'll allow me to cut you out by you helping <laughs> me learn how to uh -huh. take pictures. So it was kind of interesting. And so he said, I, I'm fine with that. I'll recommend a camera. Uh, I, he goes, I shoot with a Nikon. So why don't you just get an Nikon? I'm very familiar with the platform and it will help your learning curve quite a bit. So in August of 2011, I bought a camera and for the next four months, I proceeded to capture images every day for usually 12 hours a day, maybe somewhere wow. in that realm. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was the first time in my life that I was actually unemployed. So I had all this free time. And so it just could have been a better time for me to learn how to, how yeah. to take pictures. And so for four months straight, we were doing 12 hours a day, the both of us. And by the end of 2011, he just said, listen, you don't need me anymore. You're, you're doing, you're well on your way to doing whatever you want to do. And I'm just going to let you go. And so that that's really it. That's how I got into it. So how did you transition from taking pictures of your, uh, newborn to, um, to landscapes? Well, if you know me, you probably know that I'm not going to do something very long that I don't enjoy doing. And I hated taking pictures of people. And so I very quickly started capturing images of other things, rocks, trees, cars, you name it. It's the, it's the normal arc that everybody takes that you, you shoot until you find something you love. And so I finally happened upon landscape photography and really the rest is history okay so my understanding is that uh you i mean that was only let's see seven years ago so um you went from that to having a gallery presence in la jolla california right down the street from peter lick's gallery so how the heck did that happen <laughs> That's where luck comes in. Never discount luck. Be prepared, but understand that luck is always, well, typically part of the equation for most people. And so no different for me. I was in Kauai with Casey and he and I were shooting landscapes. And on the last day of our trip, I went over to Aaron Feinberg's gallery. Yeah, and, I've, you know, uh, I've seen is. his work uh, before. Yeah, he's done, he does some pretty pretty good stuff. Yeah, Aaron's a really nice guy, and he's a great photographer. If you haven't, if you have, you have not had him on your show, but he, I think he'd be really good. I, I really like to hear people, especially when they have a business presence and they're really good at running galleries. He has three, and so I think that that would be someone that you probably want to listen to as well. But I know that that's not part of the segment right now. That'll be toward the end. But don't forget Aaron Feinberg. He's definitely someone you want to listen to. But anyhow, I went into his gallery. And I wanted to see his work in person rather than just online. And his, his uh, gallery director approached me and he was just asking about what I was doing in Kauai. And I just told him what I was doing and he wanted to see a couple of my images. And, he, and I guess at that time he was transitioning away from Aaron's gallery and he was gonna be leaving it at some point in the near future. And so one thing led to the next, we had a dinner we talked about his business ideas and opportunities. And by the end of 2012, early 2013, he said, why don't we uh, lock you down as one of our exclusive artists at our on online gallery? Now that's the key online gallery. And I said, Oh, okay. I I'd be very interested in doing so. And eventually I did sign on the dotted line, but by the early part of 2013, he still had not officially launched his online gallery. 
And I was getting kind of antsy because what it was doing was locking down all of my images. I, I, to that point, I had just been selling images through SmugMug. And by him locking down my uh, images, I was unable to sell anything. And so I approached him and said, listen. Yeah. So I said, listen, what's, what's the deal here? Yeah. What's the problem, essentially? And he said that he was having some difficulties with his business partner. And I said, listen, I'm going to come back to Kauai in April of 2013. Why don't we talk and see what's going on? So when I was there, I went back in April of 2013. When we were there, I just said, listen, I, I, I've been thinking about it. And I, I think an online gallery where you're trying to sell images for four dollars to $6,000 a piece is kind of a non-starter. I, I, the more I think about it, the more difficult I think it is. It's just people want to smell it and they want to touch it and they want to talk to people and it's just, I think it's just going to be very difficult. Why don't we actually think about doing a physical gallery, either in Kauai or somewhere in San Diego near where I live? And he said, he was very open and receptive to it. And he said, well, why don't we do one in Kauai? And I said, very well, find some space. Well, it's very difficult to find space in, in Kauai when you're on a truncated time schedule because most of the landlords are uh -huh. absentee landlords, meaning they don't live in Kauai. They often live in other places and they only meet... Right maybe once a month to discuss new leases. And because it was April and the season, the summer season was coming, it just got to the point where I started feeling just a bit, um, I don't know if antsy is the right word, but anxious. And I just said, listen, we, we need to get some space and you're not having any luck whatsoever getting these people to commit to a lease. And in some cases, the stuff's very expensive, $10 a square foot. So let's see what we can do about looking in other places. So, I gave him a, a, about another two weeks to find a place in Kauai. He never did. He, he called me up one day and he said, look, <laughs> just find a place in San Diego. This is getting frustrating. So I found a place and we found a nice spot in La Jolla on Prospect, which is the prime street in La Jolla for selling artwork. And we entered into that agreement in July of 2013. And by the fall nice. of 2013, we were and, for business. Um you, I think you mentioned it was like right down the street or across the street from Peter Lick's gallery. Is that right? That's right. We were about five doors down from Pete's place. And what's interesting, and this is a story that I'll never forget, before we ever opened the doors to our gallery, someone left a very nasty Yelp review. <laughs> and what's fascinating about this is that the windows at our gallery were completely covered up. You couldn't even see inside. And we had never been open for business. So one of the things about Yelp is that you can't review a business that doesn't actually exist yet. And so we contacted Yelp and said, listen, this guy who has left a really nasty review and the one who is he's touting all of Peter Lick's work and saying that none of us shoot with medium format. We all shoot with uh, Nikons and we suck and this and that. It was obvious to us that this was someone who was affiliated with with Peter Lick's gallery, whether I, we, I highly doubt that Pete said, Hey, go write a really bad review, but it wouldn't be surprising if someone at the gallery in La Jolla for Peter Lick said, go write a really negative review. Right. But anyhow, since they technically couldn't do it while we were a closed business, we got removed. But it was at that point that I realized this is what we're in for. We're in a really nasty business environment with Peter Lick and anybody else who exists on that street. So fine. If they want to have it that way, let's go at it. So obviously it's a dog eat dog nature, um, having a gallery. So, um, what kind of parallels do you see between, um, that competitive aspect in a physical gallery and, uh, online and social media? And, and where do you see the intersections of, um, ethics? Well, wow, that's, that's a mouthful right there. You're, you're really talking about probably three, three different subjects right there, but let's, let's break it down. First, I think it's really important that people, any person who has a gallery, a physical gallery, can probably tell you that there isn't a finite amount of money, frankly. A client could go to Peter Licks or Aaron Feinberg's or, or uh, Tom Mangelson's gallery and Buy, a, buy an image from them and then walk down the street and buy an image from us because that image resonates with them. So first and foremost, it's not a zero-sum game, despite the fact that I think most people treat it that way. It, I understand how people really worry about losing business, but the reality is that is if you have work that resonates with someone, 
they can afford more than one piece in La Jolla, especially that, that there's a lot of wealth there and people who shop in that area have a lot of money. So it's, it's really unnecessary, for example, to leave a negative Yelp review before you ever started for started business and write that kind of thing because you're worried about losing business. It, mm-hmm. it really is unnecessary. But I really think that part of it goes to, or really dovetails right into the social world as well, because what you see there is some photographers who sell their work online. And again, they're extremely worried about not getting a sale and thinking that if someone else buys an image from a competitor, that they won't be able to, to sell something as well. Mm-hmm. And really nothing could be further from the truth because the reality is that most people online, for example, just aren't selling really expensive pieces. So if your price point is say 200 or $500, I think most people could easily afford two of those pieces for a thousand. So buy one from X and buy one from Y. And so I think if you can come to terms with that and get comfortable with that, you you become a lot less defensive, both online and in the real world. Now, what was the other part of your question? Um, well, so how, how do you see it playing out uh, in social media and where do you see um ethics come into play well the eth- the ethics portion is kind of like what we talked about with peter with with who i would suspect was someone that peter's uh, gallery knew about obviously going to our to, to the yelp page and writing a negative review I mean, that's you've implicated ethics there to the point where you're actually do, that's tortious interference with someone's business i mean that's actually a freaking civil tort we could if we could prove that they did that we could actually bring a lawsuit sure so Ethics is certainly involved in something like that. But I, are, are you talking about something different when you're talking about ethics? Or are you talking about things like that that are beyond the pale in terms of a civil civil litigation type movement that I we guess, could have actually raised? I guess more what I'm talking about is um, like what I see happening, um, especially in social media, is that um, people um, are more driven to to produce more and more just fantasy like imagery um to one up their quote unquote competitors um to the to the degree at which it, they're they're doing things like um putting in uh like milky ways into scenes where the milky way would never ever be visible um, sure. or they're um instead of going out and shooting the lunar eclipse they're just taking a photo they have of the moon uh changing the white balance so that it's red enlarging the size of it in photoshop and then plopping it into a pretty scene that they shot a completely different time of year or day and trying to pass it off as some kind of uh representation of nature uh oh but it was my artistic creation so it's completely okay and what i what i personally personally found in myself when i did that because i did that i'm not gonna Mm -hmm. lie i used to do that all the time and i wasn't as good at it as other people um but what i realized is that the what was motivating me to do that was attention that it was I wanted people to notice my photos and like my photos and buy my photos. And uh, I wanted more Facebook fans. I wanted more Instagram fans. I wanted to be liked as an artist. And sure. I think that is, an, personally, this, this is where my values are. I now believe that that is a, uh ethical uh, violation of the public's trust in how you represent the natural world as a landscape photographer, but that's just my personal take. Okay. So, so Matt, let's talk about that. (laughs) Uh, First of all, I don't have a problem with photographers who do any of the things you just talked about with this caveat, with this caveat that you disclose when it seems like you have a duty to disclose. Okay. So here's what I mean by that. Let's say that I'm in the gallery and someone comes up to me and says, and let's say that I actually engaged in dropping a sky or bringing in something that didn't exist. Yeah. Okay. If they ask me if this is a scene that is captured from a single image 
or whether or not it's a composite or, or what, what have you. Okay. I have a duty at that point to disclose that this image is six images brought into one, meaning I blended some image, some piece of this image here, here, and here. I don't have to tell, tell them exactly sure. where, but I do think that I have some obligation because they might actually go to that location and they might say, hey, when I got there, there was no way to actually find a lake because the lake didn't exist. It's clear that you actually blended in a lake from Oregon and put it into one of your Washington images. So I, I think we have an ethical duty at that point to disclose. But if I'm not selling work and no one is asking me about my work and I'm doing it for myself, you know, I really don't quite frankly think that I have any duty whatsoever. No, I, I because... totally agree. And I actually, I don't, I'm not here to say there should be any rules about this stuff. Like, like I said, but I think you I used to do it too. You so like, close. I totally understand. Like it's, I mean, it's fun. Like, you know, it's like you're, you feel like you're yeah. releasing creative juices. Like it's a fun time. But um, I, I guess, what do you say to people that say, well, it's um, anything goes in art, doesn't matter. It has no impact on anyone else uh, whatsoever. Again, I think I go back to my original comment, which is that uh, it, you, you're free to do what you want with your art, but when you have an obligation to disclose or be honest with the public because the public does not know what you know and you send them off through your wonderful artwork to a location and they're unable to view that scene and will never be able to view a scene, anything like what they see because it's a fantastical piece you probably should disclose at that point. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I struggled with this one for a really long time. Um, I really did. In fact, I remember like it was yesterday having an argument with my friend Michael Bellino about it in the car when we were driving back from a photo shoot in Washington. And, and yeah. I remember being, being very adamant that I believe that people should be able to do whatever they want and maybe even not even tell anyone because who cares? It's just art. And I guess what I came to realize was that the only reason I was doing it is to be liked. And that's a stupid fucking reason to do that, right. in my opinion. So, um, and I think people that say they're doing it for other reasons are just fooling themselves or they're, they're, um, they they want to have a really good reason to do it. <laughs> it's not selfish and based yeah. in personal, uh, gains and, and their own egos and things like that. Cause I know because I was, I was that you know, person. Matt, I know. Sure. You know, Matt, here's the thing. I, I try to stay out of <laughs> other people's heads. I, I, I don't want to project sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. my feelings right. into their artwork. And I don't want to assume that they, that they're thinking a certain thing. Cause I leave, I, I take people at face value. If someone is on Facebook, for example, and they say, listen, I do, digital artistry. I take nine images and I blend them all together and I do this and I do that. You know, that's their business as far as I'm concerned. I'm fine with that. And if they do it because they get great enjoyment out of it or because they have a clientele that loves that kind of work, who am I to tell them not to do that? It is their business and they can run their business any way they like. The problem, of course, is when you're tangentially reaching other people besides your clients and you're in your, for example, on, on Instagram, let's say you uh -huh. have 80,000 followers and most of those people are not photographers. You get these people who really love your work and you inspire them, not even to go there and take pictures, but to go there and actually view the, a uh -huh. scene from that place. It's, it's at that point that you've misled them if they go there and you never actually uh, disclosed that it would be impossible for right. them to I think see a scene like that. That's my hang up with it as well is that it's, it's, um, well, there's deeper ones for me too, but I agree. I mean, like I said, I'm not here to tell people what they can and can't do. I just think that they need to really carefully consider what can happen if they don't tell people what's up. <laughs> Matt, the thing is they have to come to terms with whether or not that's important for them to do that. I mean, it's important for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah It may yeah. be important for you, 
but there may be another photographer that says, you know, that's just not as important to me. And so I'm going to go about my yeah, business no, I think doing that's the way fair. I do I think it. that's fair, but I and also so, think they shouldn't just discount people that do think it's important as just criticizing them uh, for their creativity or whatever. Like, it's not about that. Sure. Well, I think it'd be right. I think it'd be nice to have a really civil discussion and to hammer out some ideas, but it gets very difficult yeah, to do that online, as you know. And I mean, I, I gave a I gave a talk to the Sierra Club back in when was this November of 2017, and it was all about social media and the negative impact that it can have on photographers. And so we talked about how difficult it can be to have a really good discussion about this kind of stuff, and it just really devolves typically yeah. into a, a fight. And so right. I, I just don't engage, but you know, I have something on my website and I'll quote it. It says, meanwhile, my portfolio is comprised of single image captures. I don't do high dynamic range photography. I don't stitch image images together and I don't blend various scenes from several images into a final image. That's not to say I have a negative opinion of those approaches. Absolutely not. In fact, many of my photographer friends employ any number of those techniques, producing some amazing, incredible images that I appreciate, sure. respect, and thoroughly enjoy. And that's, and that's the end of that quote. But I, I guess the way I see it is I really do gain a lot of satisfaction from looking at some of these guys that are just amazing at Photoshop and at photography and blending the two together. And it, it, I'm impressed by the amount of work that these guys do and the kind of work that they do qualitatively and quantitatively sometimes. And so I'm probably less harsh on someone who is doing digital art because I do really believe that the spectrum is, is very wide and there's room for everybody. It, I think my only issue is when it just comes time to disclose at the proper time if they do or don't. Because you just don't want to mislead someone into spending thousands of dollars to get to a location right. where they can't actually right. find something. No, I agree. That exactly. would be my only thing. And I think, too, um, if, you know, I think the topic that we talked a lot of on the podcast and is that uh, I think landscape photographers have a unique ability and position and responsibility to use their um, imagery to help um, preserve uh, locations and to help promote conservation and conservation ideals. And I think mm -hmm. it's, it's really difficult to do that with imagery that's just not real. Matt, we have an opportunity, but we don't have an obligation. And I think that's the thing that some photographers really hang their hat on. The reality is that while we have the opportunity to persuade people and to influence people, we don't owe anybody anything. That's fair. And so we don't have no, an obligation fair. to do it. In no, a perfect I agree. world, right. we would do that. Yeah, in, the, in a perfect world, I think ideally we would do that. But I don't want to, I don't, again, want to impress, uh, my, take my ethics and force feed them onto someone else. And so I think we just need to be careful when we have that discussion that we understand that, hey, well, I may feel like I have an obligation. I don't necessarily think that sure. Matt Payne has an obligation, despite the fact that I know you do. But I think it just allows us to have a better conversation when we put that out there and say, listen, I, I know you don't have an obligation, but you have great influence. And if you could see it my way, for example, I think you might be willing to maybe be, maybe you can be persuaded. It's a lot easier to have a discussion like that than it is to say, hey, you have an <laughs> obligation, my friend. And no, you're, what you're, you're doing absolutely is the right. obligation. Uh, I think, and, it, and I think for a lot of people, um, you know, their, their defense mechanisms go up when you start to say, like, you must do this and it's your obligation. I think you're absolutely right about that. Sure. Um, I think you hit the nail on the head um, that, um, that whether or not we think we do or not, um, especially if we have a large uh, social media following, we do have influence. And I think I, I just wish that people would use that influence for um, for certain things that they don't. And, and, you know, like you say, they don't have to. Um, yeah, it's sure. up to them to decide if that's important to them or not. Um, I think it's, I personally think it's a missed opportunity if they right. don't. But again, not I'm not the social media police. I'm not the photography police. I'm not the... Photoshop Gestapo, like people can do whatever sure. they want. I just uh, recognize a missed opportunity when I see one, I guess. <laughs> I, I do agree with that. I do agree with that. There, there's no question that there are some missed opportunities, but there are missed opportunities that, that we'll have to take advantage of and maybe they won't, but maybe at some point they will. 
But I think the good thing is that we continue to have a dialogue and make sure it's constructive. And as long as it's constructive, I think we can, we can meet somewhere in the common ground that we, that we probably will eventually get to. And so I'm I'm pretty good about that. I don't don't force feed anybody my, my dogma, for example. And so I tend to get along with most people and I'm willing to really listen and, and hear the arguments on both sides. And I, and I think my legal training sure. really helps me with that, to understand both sides of the argument, to take yeah. a position that I think is reasonable, but also understand that people come from a different perspective and they have a different bias and, and, and they do what they do and they do it for the reasons that they do it, but sometimes you're yeah. not privy to those reasons and, and I'm okay with that. And so to this point, I, I'm okay with some of the people who do di- digital artistry and they haven't quite come around to the to the point that they think that they have an obligation to disclose. I'm okay with that. Maybe at some point they will. Uh, as I get older and more wise, I, I find that things that I wouldn't have done when I was 25, I'm willing to do now at 50 because I've seen a lot yeah. more. And I tend to forget that so many landscape photographers are in their 20s and 30s still. And these guys are still really young. And they're really, you know, alphas out there. And they're really ego driven and they're just trying to make a name for themselves. And, you know, I cut, I cut them some slack because I remember what it was like when I was a reporter and a journalist when I was in my 20s. I mean, I started the San Francisco Chronicles in my late 20s and I understood exactly the kind of mentality that I had because I thought I needed to be uh, all out, bust your balls, do what I can to get myself out there. And as I got older, I realized that, you know, I didn't really need to do that, but I did do that. And it typically just takes some wisdom for people to, to, to change a little bit. And so I'm not going to be too harsh on some of these guys who are especially younger because the reality is that right. they're going to, they're gonna, I think, change at some point. Right. No, and, you're right. And I'm okay I mean, it took me now. several years to come to this conclusion. It wasn't like I was like, I magically decided one day, like, oh, this is how it should be. Like, it took me several 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 like hours of thinking and and conversations with other people and over the course of years to kind of come to this conclusion so yeah you're right i mean it's um people come to that well you're a good example you're a good example of this you're you're someone who allowed yourself to really marinate on the on this and to come to a conclusion at some point when you had more information that you could actually draw from and so at this point in your life, you see it a certain way, but you know, j- let's just not make sure that we're not as rigid when it comes to holding everybody's feet to the fire, because I think that everybody has to go down their own path and find out what's right for them. And so I- I'm pretty patient when it comes to that kind of stuff. Yeah, no, I think that's good. I think that's, I think that's wisdom, my friend. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. A, l- a lot of bumps and bruises along the way to, uh, to validate that. Yeah. So, um, kind of wanted to <laughs> shift gears a little bit out of this one. Um, I kind of wanted to go a little bit back into the conversation about um, having your own gallery for a minute. Sure. And um, and I, I think, if I'm not mistaken, like you had a, a great deal of success with the gallery. Um, you eventually uh, made the transition to a medium format uh, digital media format. You shoot a phase one, which is super right. duper unique. I think there's not that many people shooting a phase one. Um, and um, and it, on top of that, you've shifted to this business model where you only do limited editions of one print per image that you produce. So right. I really wanted to kind of thread thread those kind of things all together and and find out from you like, what did you attribute your success to? And then how did you kind of come to this conclusion of medium format and and then eventually this kind of idea of a limited edition of one? Okay, well, let me put this out there first. <laughs> uh, we have to decouple business success from artistic success. Mm, okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think a lot of people get confused by that one. Uh, sometimes people are not the greatest photographers, but they're really good at marketing and they have success. Uh-huh. Uh, it's yeah. really difficult to find people who are good at both. And so yeah. I, I think I was more more blessed on the business side. I think if most people look at my work, maybe this is just me being really humble about it, but 
I don't think that I stand out any more than anybody else. I mean, you look at guys like David Thompson or Alex Noriega and guys like that. Uh, 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 think of our friend Eric Bennett. Guys like that who are just knocking the cover off the ball. These guys produce beautiful work. Look look at Ryan Dyer. I, I love Ryan Dyer's work. And I know he does some blending and stuff like that, but he's pretty upfront about it. He does he, he does online tutorials showing you exactly how to do it. The guy does not hide the ball. And so uh, nor does uh-huh. Alex Noriega. He also is very upfront about this kind of stuff. And there, there's absolutely oh, yeah. nothing wrong with that. And I really, truly appreciate those guys and their ability to just really nail their shots. And then in the, in the dark room to really just get everything out of the images that they captured. So those guys are tremendous talents to, in my opinion. And then as far as uh-huh. their business acumen, I have no idea. I, I don't know Alex. Uh, I know David through social media. I've never met him, but I mean, he's a very cool dude. I imagine when I finally do meet him, I'm gonna, he's going to be everything I imagined he would be. And, and then there's Eric <laughs> and, and, and Ryan. And I know that they, they sell their online tutorials, and I think they do really well at that. I don't know what they do with their print business, if they even have a print business. And so I, I don't know how much success they're enjoying that way. But having said that, they're all capable of, of transitioning full-time, I would suspect, into business. The question is how they're going to uh-huh. get their name out there and how they're going to do it. And so online, it's really difficult. When you only have an online presence and you don't have a physical gallery, I think it's tremendously difficult because there's so many photographers with a online shingle. Everybody has a website. I mean, And that kind of uh-huh. brings us back to why I think so many people are competitive online. They have to get noticed. And they do almost anything they can do to get noticed so that they can drive traffic to their websites. And and that's understandable, no question. I wouldn't have to do that in La Jolla, for example, because you're going to walk down the street on Prospect and you're going to see the gallery and you're going to come in. So it's, it, it's much different when you're talking about a physical gallery versus an online presence. But having said that, I've just yeah. gone off on a tangent a little bit. Let's come back and let's talk about how I got <laughs> okay. into digital, uh, uh, digital medium format. The reason I did that was in 2013, when we opened the gallery, we would inevitably get a client or would-be client who just came from Peter's place and said, you know, it's interesting. Peter's work looks so much sharper, much more high definition. Now, it's true that Pete was doing focus stacking, uh, despite the fact that he probably never admitted it, but his images looked clean from beginning to end in terms of focus. And I don't do focus stacking. Uh, not against it, I just don't do it. And so there would absolutely be a difference in the quality of work that you were seeing there from a technological standpoint because he was using, he's using a phase, he's using a 617, a Leica, or, or, or something like that. And those higher resolution cameras, when they're blown up larger, they hold up better. There's no question that the pixels are they they hand are handled better at a larger size especially when we're blowing these things up two three hundred percent we all do it but it's the beginning the pixels that we have to start with that will dictate just how good those images will look when we've increased the size by three hundred percent so oh, for sure i would get these people coming over to the gallery and i saw it myself i go into the to the other galleries that in, in the neighborhood and say, yeah, I can clearly see this. And so I need to figure out what I want to do here. Am I going to continue to shoot with a D800 Nikon or do I just move up to phase one and just recoup the cost of that through print sales? Uh-huh. Uh, first of all, I would never recommend someone get a phase one. Uh, it's a, it's an expensive proposition. The digital back is typically 40 grand. The lenses just get three or four are going to cost you about 20 grand. And the body is going to be another 7,000. So you're looking at a commitment of about $60,000. If you have Woo. no way, if you have no way to recoup that investment through business, do not do it. Uh, I would recommend most people never get a phase one. First of all, it's not as uh, technolog- technologically advanced, in my opinion, as say a Nikon 850. I know that the resolution is there and technologically it might be advanced there. But by and large, especially when I started shooting with the phase in 2013, I was using um, the DF, the, the 645 DF plus body, which is pure garbage. It's an old Mamiya that was really made <laughs> to fit a digital back. It was just 
garbage. It was quirky and uh, I hated it. And not only that, there was only a single focus point on it. So instead of having oh, you know, a, a hundred and fifty <laughs> focus points you can move around, you actually had to move your move your camera, lock focus, and then recompose on the wow. same focal plane. It becomes very difficult. And it just it's frankly just stupid. It's kinda of stupid, right? Uh-huh. But it's very, very expensive for phase, I think, to and my guess is that they probably would get the technology from Sony or someone like that and, and the cost of building it into the phase is probably very, very prohibitively expensive. So they just haven't done it. And to this day, we still have a single focal point, focus point. And I'm using the phase one XF body now, which is a tremendous upgrade from the DF, uh, the 645 DS plus, DF plus. The XF is marvelous and really happy that they came out with that body in 2015. But for two years, I had to, to use and do a lot of like miracle working with the, with the 645 DF. It was just, nothing fun but having said that when i got the phase and it probably took me about a good three or four months till i felt like i was really comfortable with it so that i could take professional pictures that i was capable of capturing before i actually did capture my first image i got that i got that camera in late 2013 but i didn't capture my first image for the gallery with that camera until march of 2014 so it took a good three or four months before I felt like, okay, I have really mastered this new tool of mine. And that's the way I look at it. it all of these cameras are all tools. Sure. Uh, I, I very rarely discuss my camera unless someone asks about it. Uh, I do not do any kind. I don't leave any of the marketing material on it. I don't leave logos on it. The first thing I do is make sure that I put another, if I'm ever going to use a strap, which I don't, I would remove the phase one branding and put something else on there. <laughs> uh, I, I just don't care about phase one per se. I love the quality of the images that I get from it, but at the end of the day, it's a tool. Uh-huh. The Nikon's a tool. The Canon's a tool. You use the right tool for the job. And when I was capturing images with single images, no, not stitching, I really needed as much resolution as I could get. I needed to be as high quality. And phase one really met the, really fit the bill for me. And so that's why I ended up getting that. And I felt like I was technologically now, at least on the same uh, field with the other photographers who were also shooting medium format in the neighborhood. And so now I could get back to actually battling it out with our art again. I could, I was battling on two fronts, both technology and for art. And then once I got the technology and, and a, a camera that could produce images that could be blown up really large, then I felt like I was back on an even playing field, just fighting it out with just the art again. And so that's why I went to went, went to the phase. So, and then how did you um, come to the conclusion to just do limited editions of one? Well, that that's really an offshoot from the gallery days because our 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 um, gallery director was previously the senior gallery director for Peter Lick at Mandalay Bay in Las Vegas, and so he really just brought. Pete's business model over to our gallery. Oh, okay. And as you know, Pete does 995 in his limited edition and 950 of them are limited and 45 of them are uh, artist proofs. And so I, I frankly never thought that a limited edition of 995 was a reasonable size for a limited edition. That's really large. Yeah. And I think it really pushes the limit of calling something a limited edition, but so be it. That's the way he's done it. And I'm okay with that. But for us, we initially just started off with 50. Uh-huh. So we would sell one through 50. And when I left the gallery in 2016, I had a choice to make. And so I decided that I could make myself much more unique by just selling a single image of a single capture. So instead of selling 50 of a capture, I would just sell one. And even though I know I'm leaving money on the table, I'm okay with that because it's a lot easier to sell a single image when you have a good number of clients who frankly came from La Jolla. And so now they're part of an online distribution network. And when I release my images, they just get an email with a JPEG and first to make a bona fide offer has 24 hours to pay. And I can sell an image in 10 minutes instead of trying to sell out an edition of 50 in a year. Huh. Okay. And, and so 
I found that it, it's, it's more valuable. I mean, assuming that there's any collectability in any of our work, meaning all of us as photographers, because even that is, I think, controversial when I think about uh -huh. it, just the yeah. fact that we're, we're, that we somehow think that our work is collectible to begin right. with is debatable. Right. But having said that, once you go down that path and you decide you're going to sell your work, I think you just have to adopt the adopt it and just own it and say, yeah, my work is collectible. To what extent? I don't know. Will there be appreciation? No idea. I'm not in the business of guaranteeing a result in terms of an investment return, but I am in the business of guaranteeing that my work will be the best I can produce and that you'll be the only one that owns it. And I leave it at that. So I don't make any guarantees in terms of investment return, but I do make a guarantee that I cared about the damn image when I captured it and that it would be high quality when it gets to your wall. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because one of the things that I think you had mentioned to me last week was that you were actually um, thinking that it was about the right time to get out of photography altogether and move on to some other uh, pursuit. And I'm curious why, I mean, the way you just described your, like, your, where you're at is like, is like the dream place that I think so many of us uh, are striving to get to. And you're saying, I'm ready to exit. Uh, why? So I'm not exiting imminently, obviously. <laughs> I'm going to be, <laughs> I have a few more years until yeah. I do that, but I'm, I'm over 50 now and I'll be, you know, almost 55 years old when I decide that I'm not going to be a photographer anymore. My exit is going to be 2021, sometime in 2021 or earlier. But it'll be 10 years, and, you, you know, I, I, I've done a lot in this business, and I, I'm just always looking for something different. And if you look at my career since I was in my 20s, you'll see that I've never really did anything longer than 15 years, 15, 10 whatever there's there's a it's not an itch that needs to be scratched but much like photography i wouldn't have found that if i had not left journalism mm -hmm. and i would have never realized that i had any kind of talent whatsoever to do this if i had not decided to leave something that i was successful at there yeah and so in my way of thinking i'm thinking you know what 10 years that's a good run i'm, I'm pretty dang happy with what i've done and what i've accomplished and you know what? I'm okay with that. I'm going to find something else to do when I'm 55 years old. And let's see if I can't specialize in something else and maybe monetize that. Mm. And so when I tell people that I'm leaving, I think they're really surprised. But if you understand my philosophy and understand that I don't want to get stagnant and overstay my welcome, I think it kind of makes sense that 10 years is a long time. I've done, I've done well for myself and I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay with uh, leaving something on the table and leaving something behind. Don't, don't shed a tear for me. <laughs> so. I wasn't shedding a tear. I, 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 I was more just, um, I think it's super interesting, you know, like um, there's just so many uh, people that I feel like um, that that's like the pinnacle um, in their, their definition. I mean, I think for other people, it's, it's some other completely different um place but um i like that you that that you know like for you it's about moving on to something else that'll challenge you and um and bring something new to your life i think that's a really refreshing uh viewpoint in all of this well i think a lot of people also think that all the travel that we do is glamorous <laughs> but ask any landscape photographer who has done a number of international trips and just zigzagged all over the United States, for example, what they think of the actual travel aspect of photography. And I think most of them will say it's a grind and it's probably their least favorite part. Getting to locations, and I'm not, not talking about hiking, I'm talking about getting to the trailhead. Getting to that point generally sucks. <laughs> yeah. Driving on the freeways, sitting in airports, going through customs, all of those things are really quite uh they get to the point where they become a grind and I, i'm not going to miss that part i'll tell you mm -hmm. that right now and so there's that and then there's also just what if what is the cost of me specializing right now what am i not doing because i'm specializing here what am i 
what am I missing out on the edges? I'm not trying to find greener pastures, but I'm trying to find other opportunities. I'm trying to find different things that I can do that what can also make me happy. That's something yeah. different. And so I, I think that's where I'm at. I got to that point where I'm, I've just said, hey, I have an exit strategy here and I have three years to figure it out. And I'm sure uh-huh. I will. Uh, but, I, but I do plan on leaving this business and I want to not be leaving the business when I'm fully jaded. I do not want to be jaded from this business. <laughs> I, I want to like everybody. I want to love what I'm doing. And I'm hoping that I can leave on a note that is just really a happy note. And so I figure three years is good. And, and, and I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. So I'll, I'll be looking in the meantime, I'll be on the lookout for other things that I could potentially do. And I'm always listening to people. If they have an opp- opportunity that they're going to uh, pitch to me, I'm, I'm all ears. Cool. Well, I, um, I think that's an awesome perspective. And um, I think uh, you, you have somewhat of a unique um, position in terms of being able to offer um, some advice for people um, based on where you're at and in your career. So, you know, based on the name of the podcast, F-Stop, Collaborate, and Listen, what advice do you have for people that are maybe on the opposite end of that uh, spectrum or that are maybe just looking to take it to the next level? Well, I think that first and foremost, you should be doing this. This is me now projecting to them <laughs> that that you, you should do it because you love it. And when I got into this business, I had n- no idea that I would make any money at this. I, I did not get it, get into it for that reason. Uh, it's just for the love of it. And, you know, some things may happen in your career that you, maybe you'll have an opportunity to monetize this. And that's great. But I think if you love it and you enjoy what you're doing, embrace it. Embrace that and be open to opportunities to come your way. And maybe may be that you will monetize it someday. But I would never, ever uh, go into this business thinking that you're going to get rich from it because, frankly, you're not going to. Uh, very, very few people do. I'm not rich from it. So... I would just say that go in there, go into this business, enjoying what you do, do other things, just love everything that you're doing in your life. Don't get so focused on the money because I find that whenever I focus on money, I don't make money. It's when I'm not trying to make money that I make money. And so when when you can turn a hobby into a profession, that's always awesome. But don't, don't try to force what you're doing into, into a proposition that's all about money. I love it. Um, I'm curious, <laughs> who would you want to hear on the podcast? I mean, you've listened to all the episodes. Uh, you probably have a, a long list of people that you would think would be interesting to hear on here. So, so who hit me with it? <laughs> okay. So the first person I would recommend is Kevin Holiday. He does nothing but black and white. He lives now in South Carolina in Charleston. He just moved there from Denver. And he does some really great long exposure work, but it's all black and white. Hmm. Uh, definitely check out his work. I think you really like it. Okay. And you haven't had too I haven't really not noticed too many black and white exclusive artists on your part, podcast. No, I think uh only one I've had on is Chris Williams. Okay, so there you go. I think I, I think he would be a good person to listen to. He also is really good with business. I tend to, to like artists who also can marry business with their art. Yeah. Okay. Anyone else? Yes. Uh, another person would probably be Paul Reefer. He's a phase one photographer out of England, but he travels all over the place. So it's really tough to say that he's from England anymore. <laughs> he's all over the place, everywhere. And he's a great photographer. He does landscapes. And his last name is R-E-I-F-F-E-R, first name Paul. Okay, cool. And then another another photographer out of England is Joe Cornish. Now, Joe's been around for a long time. I'm sure you've probably heard of him. He's a phase one photographer too. And he's another guy that has really done well in business. And his art, artwork is really solid. So uh, that'd be another person you, you'd be very interested in listening to, especially from a business side of things. Yeah, I think I reached out to him already, uh, but I, I'm not sure. <laughs> you know, it, it, he's probably difficult to get in touch with. He, uh, he's, I, I think he's almost not untouchable, but he's one of those guys that 
has had so much so much success that his time is probably very precious. Yeah, right, right, right. And it's difficult for him to get on something like this. But Joe Cornish would be one. Kevin Holiday, Paul Reefer. Nah, I really think that's enough. I, I think that's th- those are guys that I really respect, and I, I think their business acumen, along with their artistic vision of the world, is really solid. And I think you enjoy any of those. Cool. Three. Well, <clears throat> thanks for the recommendations, and um, really enjoyed uh, having you on the podcast. Sorry that I um, got so uh, <laughs> passionate about that uh, topic uh, early on. It's just something that. Uh, you know, I have a lot of passion for this stuff, and um, and it, it comes out sometimes. So, <laughs> listen. Here's what I would say to you: Don't get defensive. Own your position. Um, defend your position if necessary, but also be receptive to the other side of the argument as well. Everybody's got a position, and I think it's our goal as humans to simply try to meet somewhere that's a reasonable place to meet. And I think at this point, I I feel polarized. I feel like we have this group of digital artists that are feeling somewhat, you know, left on an Island and feeling like they're not part of the group. And then you have these other guys, what what, what we'll call the purist on the other side who would not, would barely dare to even use Photoshop. I I think there's some meeting ground and, and, and I think it really behooves all of us to find it. And so I think that's our challenge as photographers to really be more inclusive and not exclusive. Mm, I like it. Well, thanks, man. Uh, Again, I appreciate uh, you taking the time to come out here. It's really been fun. (laughs) I appreciate it and and, and really really do uh, think it was an honor to be on this podcast. So thanks for inviting me.